everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week I have a special guest with me. We're going to be dedicating this whole episode to psychologists. So I have a psychologist and therapist, and I hope I said that right, Ryan from the podcast Pop Psych 101. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I wish I could claim the title of psychologist, but I have not gone to medical school or gotten my PhD or anything that would allow me to claim such a lofty title. So just therapist. I'm a, I'm, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've had my master's in social work. Okay, perfect. So that brings us to really what we were going to talk about in the, our little icebreaker. And that is, it's a little bit confusing when you, when all of the different titles that people can hold who are therapists or counselors or whatever you want to call it. I recently was looking for a counselor for my son and I asked him before this episode, I was like, do you care if I say it? He goes, I don't care, whatever, mom, whatever. So, and I found it to be kind of confusing. I was trying to, the different counselors. And I, of course I had to have one that would, could deal with a 14 year old. And of course, and then it was, okay, there's social workers and there are therapists and there are psychologists and there. What, what's the difference, Ryan? Yeah. So a lot of it is just educational background. So specifically therapists, you can have licensed clinical social workers, such as myself, which is basically, I have my master's degree in social work, and then it requires a certain amount of years of supervised training. So working, but working underneath a supervisor to make sure you have your sort of clinical hours and then there is other other types of therapists include licensed professional counselors or LPCs which is a little bit more of a specified sort of educational route in that they're training specifically to become counselors or therapists social workers um, you know you can go to school for clinical social work as I did or you can be sort of more in the administrative realm work as a manager of, let's say, a group home or a substance abuse facility, things like that. And then you have psychologists who typically have their PhD and can have a broad range of specialties. The most common is just your, your sort of garden variety clinical psychologist who might see patients uh, as a therapist does or might specialize in things like research or teaching, or could even specialize further and do things like occupational psychology, where they work in um, like work environments, or educational uh, psychology, where they specify with children, or um, even like bio, biological psychologists or biopsychologists um, who specialize in brain um, functioning and things like that. So it, there is a lot of variety and it can be overwhelming. And now even you have all this range of like coaches sprouting up and what even, that looks like mm-hmm. typically basically a coach can the, the way I describe it to people is a coach is an expert in their field and that they can give you instructions on how to complete tasks. I actually even use um, we talked about on our show Marie Kondo. Mm-hmm. Um, so she'd be a great example of a coach, right? She comes in, gives you a prescribed set of tasks to become better at something. Okay. Um, and then a therapist has a more sort of broad range of skills or, or expertise in that you are the expert on yourself and they are helping you sort of gain insight into your, let's say, thoughts or behaviors or negative past experiences. So what what, would, what advice would you give to people if someone is maybe thinking that they need a counselor or a therapist? What, when they're going to, because like I said, I found it kind of confusing and difficult. And I, 
we got so, I felt like we got so lucky because Levi loves the, um, the therapist that we found. I don't know how that happened. We were so thankful, but I could see how it could happen that you might have to go through a few different ones. If, you know, maybe the, if you don't match up or I don't know, it just seems like it would almost be almost like a dating kind of thing. You would kind of like get to know the person and think, ah, I don't think this person's right for me and you'd have to move on. What, what do you think? Yeah, it's tough because it's not like seeing your sort of general practitioner mm -hmm. uh, doctor where, you know, you just go in, they check your symptoms and give you your medicine and you're on your way. There's there's is a required amount of trust that's needed. And to have that trust, you have to have comfort and you don't necessarily have to be comfortable with your general practitioner yeah. for them to give you your medicine. But with a therapist, absolutely, there needs to be a certain relationship that's formed. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one is group practices can be really effective places to start because you can get, let's say, a general evaluation by, let's say, someone that works in their admissions department, and then they can link you up based on your, let's say, treatment needs with someone who best fits that within their practice. So you might not know what you're looking for, but they have seen, let's say, patients like your son and can link them up with um, someone who might specialize with males or with people dealing with whatever sort of presentation your son might have coming in. So that's one thing. And the other thing we, we often recommend is going through referrals. So if you really like your general practitioner, start with them. They might have therapist recommendations or clinic recommendations that, that you would go from. So we, we try to direct people through sources they're already comfortable with because, you know, while there are good resources like Psychology Today, which you can go in and sort of plug in your your zip code and your uh, insurance and you can find local therapists, to your point, you're you're sort of just hoping for a gust of wind yeah. to send you the right Mary Poppins, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, so it can be uh, sort of trial and error in that way. So, okay. Well, that's interesting. So later on in the, when we kind of get to the, the good good quote good nurse part of the story we're going to talk more about your podcast and what you're doing to Great. help people for now though we're going to talk a little bit about our little true crime portion of the show the, yeah the bad nurse or the in this case the bad quote bad psychologist mm -hmm. which you know i say bad but i don't know after after really researching this story and seeing all the different stories and i i found a really really in-depth article on this on slate yep. that told all of the details and after reading everything i'm not going to say she's a bad person honestly but uh, at the same time I'll, I'll let other people you know give their opinion about what they think you know about what happened for sure so there it was a very complicated uh situation so basically what happened is on um, april 16 1995 25 year old gonzalo ramirez was found dead on the side of the road in irvine california he had gashes all over his body his skull was cracked and two of his fingers on one hand had almost been completely severed. Investigators determined the gashes had been made with a meat cleaver. So clearly this was a very violent death. He had been tortured and somebody was obviously very angry mm -hmm. with him. It was it was clear to, to the investigators. They had just received a report of an attack on on him a few hours earlier apparently he had been out at a dance club with a friend noel riaz i think is maybe how you Reyes, sure. Reyes. Mm -hmm. and they so they're going down the road they just left this dance club and they're going down the road and they were hit in the back of their truck by a white van and we've talked before um on good nurse bad nurses about the dangers of vans <laughs> and they, uh, I, I joke around about about kidnap vans all the time but it's not really funny but that's how i deal 
Brian, with <laughs> with with things I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah, I laugh. That's good advice. Yeah, <laughs> I just laugh at everything that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> so anyway, they were hit by in the back with a van, and I got one of the. There were several people in this van, and this is according to Reyes, the the, the passenger, that he said that one of the guys in the van got out and started beating up Ramirez. So he went to try to help him, and then another guy got out of the van. And he just thought, okay, I'm not, I'm clearly not in any shape to be able to take on these two people. So he took off running, went to a nearby hotel and got a security guard. By the time they got back, they were all gone. The van, his truck, I I think was even gone. I think they all just left. And all the people, whoever was in the van, I think he said he saw a woman, Mm -hmm. a couple of guys maybe. And so the police start trying to investigate and what happened clearly he's dead now what what's going on is is there anything he's he's married and also has some girlfriends but what's the deal why is why was somebody targeting him in particular so they go to um his apartment and he has a roommate and he finds on one of his bills the name patty and phone number and they asked the roommate you know what do you know who this person is and the roommate says well he was kind of bragging a few weeks ago about going out with this girl and he said that he said that he was kind of like laying on the bed or something and let me know if you get if i get something wrong here but i, I think yeah, keep going he was like he was laying on the bed and then ramirez took grabbed like the bottom cuff of his pants and like, yanked them off and he basically said, that's what I did to this girl before I had sex with her. So police are thinking, hmm, this, this is interesting. He's got the name. They go and look up the number and it is the, the, the phone number is to a dorm room at a college, nearby college. And the person who was living in that particular dorm was Patricia Esparza. And so Patty, you know, Patricia Mm-hmm. So the story about, of course, he he put it having sex with her. She had a little bit of, of a different story about what happened, and so police go and find her and 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 um and talk to her about it, and so she says, well, yeah, he he raped me, and she told the story of of her story of what happened, and she said that that he he raped her, and then the, the next day she went to. The nurse, and I find this really tragic and unfortunate, but she's, she went to the, the campus, I guess. Like health center. Health yeah. center, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the nurse, I think she kind of made it seem like the nurse sort of was judging her, you know. And I don't know if she was didn't necessarily believe her, but she was kind of, well, she didn't tell her, she didn't encourage her to go to the police and, and fill out a report. So she, she just kind of felt you know, judged. And so she took the, I think, I guess the morning after pill. And then at some point she was struggling in her cl- one of her classes and she talked to her professor about it. And I guess she kind of broke down crying and told the professor what happened. And there again, there's another person who heard her story and just kind of went right on, didn't, didn't say, you know, you really should go tell someone. And so this 20 year old young lady who just had been through this horrific incident is I'm sure, you know, scared and going through all of the, the, and you can talk about a little bit about that, what, you know, what she might've been, um, oh, sure. you know, going through, but she's probably feeling like it was her fault. Do you think she was kind of blaming herself? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like there was a lot of hesitancy on what to do with this story now after she had had some of these negative reactions from people, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes on as I'm sure you'll cover, you know, each person that she talks to has this sort of different 
negative reaction really to the fact that this happened to her mm -hmm. yeah so so absolutely there's and obviously it comes out later in the story that she had um abuse from her own past as well so yes it's a really complex situation for patty yeah it really was and so then she says the only other person that she told was at some point so she had an ex-boyfriend that she had broken up with a few months earlier and he, I guess, was still sort of hanging around or he would call her and come around. And he came over to her place and she was visibly upset about something. And he kept on trying to get her to tell him what was going on. And she finally admitted to him what happened. And he was very upset about it. And he insisted that she tell him who it was. So she did. So then she told him where she met this guy. And then he made plans with some friends of his and she says she didn't know these people. She didn't really know them. She didn't know what they were capable of. But then they all kind of went to this club where she met him before and just hope in hopes that he would be there. And as it turns out, unfortunately for him, he was. And she pointed him out that night. Her ex-boyfriend, while he he's kind of being like wanting to get revenge for her but at the same time she said he was sort of judgmental also and blaming her and saying it was her fault and she shouldn't have had him come back to her apartment and because when she told the story she admits that she they had kind of walked around together had i don't you know kind of went to eat they they were sort of maybe on sort of a date and then they went back to her apartment because he said he wanted to drink water and then he talks her into laying down on the bed so there's some things that happen where is you know a 21 or a 20 year old girl who had already suffered abuse so she probably she knows how to blame herself for everything you know oh, yeah. yep. so she immediately all of these things it was not her fault in any way it was not her fault but she i can see where she would be able to convince herself that it was and especially when she's got all these people around her treating her like it was including her ex-boyfriend who is so conflicted he's mad and angry at this person but yet he's sort of treating her like it was her fault also mm -hmm. and kind of mad at her so she's afraid of him she's just kind of afraid not to go along with this and but she does say that she thought the very worst thing that would happen would be maybe they would rough him up a little bit she never right. thought they were going to kill him so they they did end up kidnapping Ramirez, of course, whenever they rear-ended his truck. And one of the, so the group, little group of um, the people that he got together, mm -hmm. there was a couple who owned a transmission shop, like a auto. Automotive shop. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so in this automotive shop, they have where, I guess, chains hanging from ceiling yeah no i know i know yeah uh and so when they took him back to and and, and the the female the, the the wife and the husband both were involved in this and i don't know how much involved the wife says that she wasn't involved in the initial kidnapping but that she went to the shop that evening to see just out of curiosity to see what was going on she says mm -hmm. and so i know that esparza the the rape victim said that she saw Ramirez hanging from chains. So yep. they had basically had him hanging up. And so all of these people are kind of involved in this thing. It's, I don't know that it's ever really that clear who did the killing or who what happened. What? Yeah. But mm -hmm. Esparza says that she was told by her ex-boyfriend that they let him go. So she didn't actually think that he died. They, they, she thought they kind of roughed him up a little bit and then let him go. And then the police came to her. And when they start asking her questions, of course, she's afraid and she denies everything. And so I guess they told her when they showed her him kind of hanging from the chains, they basically said, 
this is what will do to you if you if you tell. Yeah. Does that make any sense? I mean, I don't even understand. If he cared so much about her that he's getting revenge. Right. Why are you then threatening her for the person you're trying to help? Yeah. The Oof. whole thing is just really messed up and it almost just kind of feels like someone was just kind of really wanting an excuse to just hurt someone and it just felt like a good excuse at the time maybe for that person mm -hmm. so this all happened in 1990 Five. 1995 yeah. so years and years and years go by like 17 years and nothing happens they had all this evidence they had dna evidence at the automotive shop, the his body was kind of, I don't know if it was wrapped or there was like these blue towel type things were around his body when they found it. That is sort of like, even I, who I've never gone to an automotive shop, but I can kind of picture this in my mind, those blue towels. Oh yeah. Like the stuff they clean the grease off with. Exactly. Yeah. So that was there and, and it was kind of obvious to the investigators that it probably came from this automotive shop. Mm -hmm. And... There was a an entire roll, I guess, of those blue towels that was missing and conveniently missing. Yeah. Conveniently <laughs> missing. The vendor that I guess had recently dropped off the towels said that they dropped off two and one wasn't there. There was a lot of evidence to without any testimony from Patricia Esparza against Van and the owners of the shop and the other people. And yet they pretty much just dropped the whole thing and didn't do anything about it for like 17 years. And then all of a sudden these new investigators come along because murder is murder and it, there's no statute of limitation. So they're going to, somebody comes along with a fresh Keep set of eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Patricia Esparza graduated from college with her bachelor's degree. She actually, she was a double major. She got her PhD and moved to Europe. She started working for the World Health Organization in Geneva and she married and had a little girl and just just created this wonderful, beautiful life for herself that where, where, from where she came from, she and her husband were both born in Mexico and they really built quite a life for themselves in spite of some humble beginnings. Oh, sure. And um, so she, at some point, is needing to come back to the United States for a conference, not realizing, she said she did, she had no idea, and I, I believe she her. wanted, yeah. <laughs> I tend to believe her, because I don't think she would have come back. if. Right, of course. <laughs> so she comes back, and as soon as she gets to the airport, they arrested her. Now, I read an account that said that she, I think the investigators sort of reached out to her and gave her the impression that they were just sort of trying to get some information. They were just investigating. She was considered a victim. Not a subject of investigation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so... Which is, she, I'm sure, what they tell all the suspects. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you tell all the suspects that, don't yeah. you? And I guess from the very beginning, she never was really treated like a suspect, even when it initially happened. And I honestly don't think she ever saw herself as a, a suspect. I think she always saw herself as a victim, which she was. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I mean, when I hear her story, I feel like she was a victim, even with the murder and what happened. I don't I don't personally blame her. I know other people see it differently and there's a lot of different as the internet is there's a lot yeah. of different opinions about it of course I, I personally just see her as a victim she was a victim her whole life you, you alluded to the, the fact that she talked about her childhood she says that her father sexually abused her growing up I don't think he denied that and even her some of her other family members her mom and her brother and sister they all kind of concur you know that yeah, that it, corroborated that, that. Yeah. yeah same story and and that that sort of can create in someone 
she talked about, of course, she's a psychologist, so she understands all of this now. And it's probably for someone, people sitting on a jury or people sitting on, you know, behind their keyboard on the Internet, they can probably look at this and go, oh, look, it's a successful, intelligent woman. How can you say she didn't, she couldn't know that that was wrong or, or she was some sort of a victim. But the thing is, she was 20 years old and she did have to develop probably some dissociative type of behaviors, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. sort of mechanisms to protect herself. And, um, she says that's basically what happened. She basically dissociated herself from the whole event and she had learned how to do that when Mm -hmm. in her childhood, just kind of separate herself. She's a victim of her father, but that, but yet he's her father and she's, living in the same house. And even after it all came out, the the abuse came out, he continued to live in the same house with them. So you have to be able to dissociate in order to have your father who is your father. And at the same time, your abuser, you know, just to maintain stability. Yeah. So she knew how to do that. She naturally did that. It was a, you know, coping mechanism or defense, defense mechanism, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. And so she, that was kind of her, I guess it, defense or the way that she sort of defended not what she did because she didn't necessarily do anything but just how she reacted to it the fact that she didn't go to the police didn't she wasn't honest with the police about about what happened and so that's now how she tries to explain what happened but in 2016 well van was convicted in 2015 and given a life sentence so based on her testimony they were able to to arrest Van Shannon Grice, who was one of the men involved, he got a 25-year prison sentence. Van was given a life sentence. One of the women was given immunity for testifying. Hmm. The co-owner of the transmission shop, Diane Tran, she was given four years in prison. Her husband, Cody Tran, died by suicide in July of 2012 before they were all arrested. And so she went, uh, Patricia Esparza ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to six years in prison in 2016. So it's kind of sad. She's still in prison now. Yeah, it's a very sad story. Yeah, because as you said, she doesn't feel like she's done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And and if we observe this story um, with the facts that you just stated, we might be able to say that she did nothing wrong. I think people are looking at it and even the authorities are looking at it as if she, almost as if she like authorized or told them to do this, that she was a party to this murder. But yeah, it's sad. I mean, I've worked with people who have experienced abuse um, similar to to Patty, and just like she did, the the sort of knowing what to do in the wake of that experience is so difficult. So, you know, this is sort of the worst case scenario, I guess, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, I really empathized with her seeing in terms of how this played out and how, you know, initially, I guess she refused to plea like because she didn't um, she didn't feel like it would be her truth, really, if she sort of admitted or or took ownership for this murder having happened. And it would ruin her her psychology career. Oh, of course. Yeah. Reputation would be ruined. It's it's terrible what's happened to her, I think. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I, I think just from reading all the different articles that I've read and all the research that I've done, it seems to me that all of the other people involved backed up her, her version of the events. No one ever said, even though it really would have been to their advantage to say that it was all her idea. Oh, sure. They never said that. But nobody claimed that. No, Mm -hmm. they all basically said that Gianni Van was angry that at the fact that she had been raped and Mm -hmm. that he was the one that was initiating the whole thing. He basically just had her point him out and they never even really said none of them said that she even knew that uh, of any of their intentions that they were planning to kidnap him or that they're 
and certainly that they were going to kill him. She, it was just kind of, to me, really sad that it seems obvious to me that she didn't really have anything to really do with it. And then there are some people on the internet who, I, you know how people just comment and say dumb yeah. things, but who would who even try to say that Ramirez didn't really rape her, that she wasn't re- really raped. I think that's ridiculous. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I, I think it's just obvious what happened here. Yeah. So I guess I guess the, the argument is that, you know, if if she knew that he was going to be murdered, which obviously claims that she did not, and that she aided in that process by, like, pointing him out in the club and then sort of seeing things happen and then not reporting those things mm-hmm. immediately, that, like, that was enough participation in the event for her to be charged. But but as she said, you know, she had no intention of that being the ultimate outcome and that she didn't, even in pointing him out, wasn't sort of intending, like, okay, you go beat this guy up now. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to know who he was. She pointed him out. I mean, it's just a tough situation because you really don't know what to do. And, you know, whether she wanted justice or whether she was actually, and as she claimed in the Slate article, she was also scared of, of Gianni and she yeah. was scared of these guys knowing knowing what maybe what they were capable of now, but also just knowing that, you know, maybe they weren't great people um, and that she, and even talking about the rape in similar words, just wanted this to be over as soon as possible. So mm-hmm. if they were really pushing this on her, that she surely just thought, okay, fine, I'll point this guy out and then I'm out of here. Like, I'm not, I don't want to be part of whatever you guys are trying to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's sad all the way around for sure because she was sort of time after time put in these positions of really not knowing how to get herself out of them and her just taking you know, whatever actually she could to get out of the situation as quickly as she could. Yeah. And I love that she ended up getting a degree in psychology and going on. Yeah. Yeah. And she really has been helping people an advocate for people. Yes. Yeah. For victims and, and a voice for victims. So it's, it's to me, the only hope that I can have is that when she does get out, I'm sure she can, maybe she can't, I don't know how that works. Maybe she can't as a convicted felon practice you know, as a psychologist, but she, I'm sure, can still do things to, to help people. Oh, no question. Whether that be as an mm-hmm. advocate or, um, you know, uh, uh, someone who can, I'm thinking, even like aid uh, companies or organizations on sort of the needs of these types mm-hmm. of patients. There's no question to me that, that she can be a valuable resource. And and even in telling her own story for, for victims is very yeah, powerful. Yeah, so hopefully... It would be nice if she could get some sort of pardon or something like that from the from the governor before she has to serve that whole sentence. But it would worst case scenario that's you know three more years and then yeah. she'll be able to. And it's sad her her daughter you know is getting older and older. Oh, that's that kills me. Yeah, without mom. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we'll move on. That was our that was our bad story. It's always nice to kind of get past <laughs> those. But and. So now we're going to be talking, um, our good nurse story this week is kind of about you, Ryan, and the work that you're doing with your podcast. And I want you to really tell um, our listeners about, because I love the podcast. I think it's so, for me, to have a resource for mental health issues, it's so important in this day and age where we don't have a lot of, I mean, we're fortunate, I'm fortunate enough to have really good insurance. So if any of us have mental health needs where we need to go see a therapist, we can use our insurance, we can use our health spending account and, you know, and that sort of thing. It's not cheap by any means. And so I love that you have this available for people who don't have those resources and they can listen to it. It's a, it's funny and entertaining. Mike's hilarious. He cracks me up. He's like, (laughs) he is so funny as I was listening to 
you mentioned the Marie Kondo, um, and I was listening that to that today, and he was killing me today. I was just like, he is so funny. <laughs> I love to listen to your podcast. So tell tell them a little bit about what you do and how how your podcast works. Sure. Well, yeah. So thank you, first of all, so much for those kind words. Um, so Pop Psych 101 is hosted by myself, um, who, as you said, is a therapist, and Mike Graham, who is a um, I guess you would say an advocate for um, mental health. He all, all has also been open on the show about his own um, mental health struggles and is admitted to being in therapy. So we come to uh, the table with those different perspectives. And the way we talk about mental health is through the lens of popular culture. So, you know, me as a therapist, I always want to help people get this information that I talk about with my patients every day. You know, how can I help a broader audience get these insights that my patients are learning and learning for themselves, but also could be valuable to people that maybe are not in therapy. So I've always wanted to try to find ways to make that information accessible and even, as you said, entertaining. Because I think if, if, it, if we can make it light, if we can make it accessible for people, sort of give people a side door into this process, you know, then then they can learn about what depression and anxiety is without it being this heavy, complex topic. So each episode, we take a, a pop culture reference point. As we said, uh, this week's episode was Marie Kondo's show, uh, Tidying Up, on Netflix. And we talk about the mental health issues that are portrayed in the show or movie or book, or eventually we're hoping to do music. That'll be a different challenge. But but yeah, so basically we say, okay, you know, this is what's going on in this piece of media. What are we seeing here? What are the sort of implications for someone who might be struggling with these issues? What would treatment look like? What would recovery look like? And we try to do all that in an entertaining, light way so that people can get information, but also in a way that it doesn't have to be, as I said before, this sort of really heavy, dark thing. I mean, sometimes it is, inevitably, when you're talking about, you know, things like addiction or, or um, suicide. But but even in those topics, we try to kind of bring it back to a place that's very relatable for people. That's really good. I was thinking about the episode that you did on Let It Go with Elsa and major yeah. depressive <laughs> disorder. And so that, I mean, major depressive disorder is depressing topic. I mean, it's, yeah, it's heavy. It sure it, there's nothing light about it. But yet... When I listen to the episode, it's it's fun to listen to because you're you know talking about Anna and Elsa, and then Mike gives his perspective, and he I could hear when he talked about the line of conceal don't feel, and yep. and I could tell that really resonated with him, and so yeah. there, he's he's sort of funny. He kind of you can hear there he's deep, and you can hear that, but yet he's sort of he he's maybe a little bit like me kind of like laughs about things you know laughs about for sure so but i could tell that really meant a lot to him and i i can relate to that as well just sort of like keep everything hidden you know kind of keep the facade mm -hmm. up um so people don't i've struggled with depression myself and i think i probably am one of those people that I'll, most people at work would think there's no way I struggle with depression because i smile all the time laugh all the time that's right everything's yeah. a joke i everything's a joke for me. I mean, like I have to be careful. Sometimes we kept patients die on our floor. So, mm. so I, that's how I cope. So I will turn everything into a joke. So I have to be really careful because it, the, the sadder it is, or the more serious it is, the more I want to laugh. I don't know why I'm like that, but I am terrible at funerals. Like sometimes I have to pinch myself so hard to just like make myself cry to keep myself from laughing. Well, certain type of funerals, that's that's the vibe, right? <laughs> I know um, so I've, I've certainly had uh, funerals in, in different parts of my family where, 
you, that sort of celebration of the person is perfectly appropriate. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's a certain kind of defense mechanism, mm-hmm. but, but knowing yourself and you can kind of recognize if I'm forcing a laugh right now, like what's going on for me that maybe I can mm-hmm. also get in touch with the other emotions. So yeah, but I'm very grateful for, for people like you sharing your own experiences. And I've, uh, I continually, I continue to be grateful to Mike for sharing his experiences on our show. Um, even if it's in uh, the lighthearted, funny way that we talk about it. Well, we really, I really appreciate you and appreciate your podcast. And, you know, as far as when, when it comes to nursing, I, there are nursing, uh, there are uh, psych nurses. Mm-hmm. And we joke all the time on our floor about, because I work on a progressive critical care floor. So it's a okay. PCU. And so we joke all the time that it's instead of progressive care unit, it's the psychiatric care unit. Because, you know, it's sort of a funny when I think about how I said, I don't, I would never want to be a psych nurse. I don't think I could ever handle it. It would just too, it would hit too close to home for me. Like I would be, I would be constantly taking those issues home with me and worrying about people. And when I'm on the floor working where I work, almost all of our patients have psych issues i mean oh, sure. in one way or another and some of them yeah. it's just like an acute encephalopathy you know where there's some sort of an imbalance or something wrong with them that's causing them to be confused but sure. sometimes they have bipolar or depression or whatever all kinds of different issues that they you know they have in addition to what all the other com- comorbidities that they have going on so as a nurse, I'm constantly having to think about the psychiatric type of, you know, side of it for my patients. I talked, I, you and I talked about, I, I told you, I use the Haslow's hierarchy of needs all the time. As a nurse, I think about that, how people can't move to the next level until they have their basic needs met. That's right. And so we get patients all the time who are homeless and, and you just, and you're just, you can't, stand there and educate someone about the importance of taking their blood pressure medication when they don't have a house. Yeah, it's unfortunate, yeah. but true. So Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for psychiatric nurses. I've, and when I've worked in inpatient or outpatient units where we've needed a nurse on staff, it's, it's always been a very grateful um, relationship to have that person that you can go to that has obviously the medical expertise, but also has the, you know, I always felt like there was a different sort of comfort that the nurse was able to offer, you know, whether that's just, you know, sometimes in groups, someone will complain of a headache, whether they actually had a headache or not, wasn't really the point. It was just like, okay, here's a pass to go see the nurse. And then they would come back. And even if, even if the, if they got Advil or not, then the nurse made them feel better. Something mm-hmm. about that, you know, addressing the medical needs and having that, that, that backup was, was so important um, when I've had the, the pleasure of having access to a psychiatric nurse. It's always been something I've uh, really tried to appreciate. So, so thank you. Even, even if you're not a psychiatric <laughs> nurse, as you said, you're probably doing a lot of that inadvertently. So Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps it up for our episode. Do you have anything else you want to say? Yeah, we, we, we have a great conversation, obviously, on Pop Psych 101. I do a little bit of writing if people are interested on, on following other stuff that I do over on Medium. So that's medium.com at Ryan Engelstad. And we love for people to join the conversation, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook. So yeah, yes, happy to, to talk about this stuff anywhere. So. Lots of really good conversations on your uh, Facebook page, for sure. I, I love that, that group that you have there. And um, 
and your Instagram and Mike does such a good job putting little, I don't know what you call them. I don't think they're audiograms cause he does something much. He more. does like videograms. Yeah, he yeah, does he's, really he's good. Quite, he's quite yeah. talented with the, the technological aspect of our podcast. Yeah. Another part I'm very grateful to him for. <laughs> <laughs> me too. He did, uh, he helped me out with a little episode, a little special episode that I did on the Rohingya refugees. Right. And it was just, it, it was like the perfect touch that he added to it and it just made it so nice and I really appreciate him so much. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate you. I appreciate Mike for letting me borrow you for an episode. So I guess I'll be signing off for now. You guys be sure and get in touch with me on Facebook and Instagram. Send me messages. You know, I love to hear from you. It's always so encouraging to hear from my listeners. And I just want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>